Well, I've run two marathons. Uh, the last was 2013. I ran with a buddy of Mike, and um, we had trained together all summer. Things were going really well. Uh, for the first 19 miles, we were cruising along about a 7-minute, 15-second-per-mile pace. So we were thinking about 3 hours and 10 minutes. We thought that would be pretty good. We rounded the corner at mile 19, and there it was, the hill. All you could see for miles, this hill just went on and on and on. All of a sudden there was like a new voice that was inside my head that was kind of waging war against me, my body, and my mind. My legs had been reasonably tired at this point, but now all of a sudden it's like they're sand-filled tubes of jello, right? And this mind is like, this voice is telling me, it's like, I told you we were going too fast. I'm like, no, no, we'll be okay, you know, and mine's, no, we need to stop, we need to rest, we need to walk up this hill, and I'm like, no, I never stop on a hill. This did not end well. Uh, that little voice kept going, and we cert- certainly, uh, we, we sure enough, we stopped and started walking, and uh, over the course of the last seven miles, we slowed down to about a 10-minute per mile pace. Yeah, almost three minutes a mile slower. We finished, uh, I finished about three hours, 30 minutes, still a decent time. My friend came in about 10 minutes later, but we experienced just what Alice is talking about on this video, right? We, we failed to take into consideration the course that had been marked out for us, and we failed to adequately fuel our bodies with enough calories and with enough of the right food to keep us going. Uh, I have a graph, that two things about the, the course um, that we didn't realize is you see um, on the bottom there, that elevation chart, the first 20 miles are downhill. Miles 20 to 23 actually go uphill at about a 5% grade is what I figured out. At 6%, they give warning signs to trucks, you know, use low gear when you're coming down. So a significant hill, and uh, had we thought about this, maybe instead of just training on the flat bike trails around Cedar Falls and Waterloo, we would have done some hill workouts. Maybe. Nobody really likes to do hills, right? We should have done some hill workouts, right, Steve? We should have done some of those hill workouts. Um, And we should have taken in more calories and the right kinds of calories on the day of the race as well as uh, in preparation. So we're in this series called The Race, and it's passages from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And St. Augustine called this teaching from Jesus a perfect standard of the Christian life. Experts throughout history have argued that this is the most influential, highest expression of moral insight and inspiration that's ever been given. In this teaching, Jesus gives us the, the course. He lays out the course for us if we want to run and follow him to an abundant life. And just as important as Alice has reminded us, he begins with God's grace. He says that grace is the fuel, right? Jesus comes and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's home base. That's the starting point for us. God brings grace to all those who are far from God or who feel far from God, all those who are grieving. All those who are hungry for things to be made right in this world, who are thirsty for things to be made right in their own lives, and people who know that they can't do this on their own, that they need and they can welcome God's help and God will make things right for them. That's you this morning. This is good news. Jesus is here with us this morning. He's here to be with us, to flip our world right side up. We celebrate that this morning. And so, as Dave said, it's so upside down from our world. God's kingdom is actually right side up. Our world kind of clamors to be with those who are strong, those who are successful, those who are on top. Jesus comes to be with those who are at the bottom of life. 
and to begin to restore them. He's flipping the world right side up and he's doing it with grace. And he's telling us about this before he even gives us a single command in this teaching, which is consistent with the rest of the rhythm of the Bible and the flow of the Bible. God always blesses before he commands or instructs. We see this in the creation story. God blesses Adam and Eve through creation, through giving them every tree in the garden to eat from before he commands them, there's one that you shouldn't eat from. God rescues his people from slavery in Egypt before he gives them the Ten Commandments. God blesses Abraham and then tells him, go and be a blessing. And Jesus here demonstrates God's goodness before he begins to instruct. And I think we need to pay attention to this order if we're going to make sense of Jesus' words to us and if we're going to have any chance of living in to this message that he gives us in the Sermon on the Mount. It's God's goodness that calls us forward. It's his grace that's the fuel that propels us along the road that he's about to lay out for us. His instructions will mark out the boundaries of that road, but it's his grace that keeps us running in and with God's blessing in this world. Now, Jesus does one more thing before he begins uh, laying out some commands. He says one more really interesting thing that I think gives us another uh, important framework for making sense of the path that he's laying out. He says this one thing. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. There were more than 600 Old Testament commands And these Pharisees, these teachers of laws, they were the religious experts of the day. And they had every one of these commands down to a T. They followed them, they obeyed them. How can we possibly surpass their righteousness? Matt Chandler says they're like the professionals, they're the Ivy League of all of this stuff, and you guys, you're like JUCO, or maybe junior high in this. So what are we to do about this? Certainly the Pharisees thought that the way they were living meant all this religious behavior, all this activity, meant they were running the race that was marked out for them, that they were obeying and following God's instruction for them. But Jesus seems to be suggesting that's not the case. Their righteousness wasn't enough. Jesus is saying it's important to not only know the course that we're running, but also to pay attention to how we're running it. I think he's warning us that it's possible to think that we're following his instruction, that we're running a good race, when in actuality the way that we're doing it is taking us off course and right out of the race. To the religious leaders that were concerned about their outsides, God was most concerned with what was going on on the inside. Their religious practices focused on outward behaviors. Religion was weighing them down with rules, rules that too often kept people on the outside looking in. But God works from the inside out. God wants to transform people's hearts. He wants to give them new hearts, one that's connected with him through the resurrected life of Jesus. This is what he was trying to say through the prophet Ezekiel when he said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. It's a connection that allows God's love for us and for others to throw to us and through us. God's most concerned with that condition and that connection of our heart. And following and obeying Jesus is one of the ways we keep this connection healthy and we keep it strong. 
This is the first part of chapter 5. And then Jesus goes on and he, in the second part of chapter 5 and he, and he tells us that he wants to free us from other things that, that trap us all the time. He says, don't, you know, you've heard it said, don't commit murder, don't commit adultery. But I say that it's lust and anger that are holding your hearts hostage. Let me show you a way to free you from these things. Let me give you a new way to a life the way God intends for you to live. God is with you. He wants to free your heart. See, God wants so much more for us than we actually want for ourselves. But I think we have trouble sometimes remembering this or accepting this. Too often we think we can make ourselves and our own lives better and happier doing it our way. That or we have so much baggage in our lives that we have a hard time believing that God could actually be for us. What? God is for us? No way. It's not just the world, it's not just religion that lies to us about this. Our own hearts deceive us about this. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah said, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Hearts deceive us in so many ways. This is why Jesus works from the inside out. He knows our hearts are sick. He came to heal the sick, to give us new hearts. One of the things that our hearts are most deceptive about, that our minds get most confused about, is money and how we handle money. How we get it, how much to get, when we get it, how to spend it, how to save it, how to give it away. What happens if I don't get it? What happens if I don't get enough of it? Hearts can be pretty deceptive when it comes to our views on money and how we handle money. I know in our house, it's a topic of conversation uh, and an issue that comes up, especially as we're trying to think, how do we afford to pay for two kids in college this fall? I do know the answer to that. We don't. <laughs> don't know if my kids know that yet. Uh, they will. Uh, I also know that this summer, um, I've been getting these messages on my phone a lot um, that say, um, you've currently used 75% of your data tier. You have now used 100% of your data tier. You are moving to the next level. Um, over and over, I've been getting these. I finally, and not only that, but my, my wife tells me when I got back from California a few weeks ago, she says, oh, your daughter needs a new phone. It, hers broke. And your, your son, Louis, he, he's also due for a new phone. What does it mean to be due for a new phone? I'm like, I'm pretty sure it doesn't mean that U.S. Cellular is going to give them iPhones. But So I addressed this whole, this whole data thing, and I said, listen, I'm going to be reviewing the accounts this month, and each of you are going to be responsible for your own overages. You can imagine the conversation that followed after that, especially since I had texted them this information using data. And, and, uh, and in the family group, um, instead of sending it to my son, Eli, I sent it to my oldest son's friend, Eli, <laughs> He was pretty shocked to find out he'd be paying for our overages. So, <laughs> It's easy to get overwhelmed by this stuff, right? For, for money and anxiety about money and these things to creep in and start like messing with our minds and robbing us of joy in life. And it's all about stuff that we don't really need. I mean, nobody buys an iPhone because they need an iPhone, right? Maybe, maybe you do. I don't know. I don't think we need it. Arguments about money, you know this? Arguments about money actually are the root cause of more than 50% of 
of all divorces in our country. Money is a big deal, and Jesus understood this potential of money to get hold of our hearts and to enslave us and to take us right out of the course, out of the race that we want to run with him in life and faith. So Jesus taught about money. He taught about it often and how to avoid this trap. The right view of money and and how to handle money, the practice of handling that, is so central and so important to a person who wants to follow Jesus. It's the primary topic of the majority of Jesus' parables. But when Jesus talks about money, he's not really talking about money. He's talking about our hearts. He's talking about freeing our hearts. And we see this in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what he says. This is Matthew six nineteen through 24. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Following Jesus involves careful consideration of our approach to money and the handling of our stuff. There's so much at stake, and it seems like Jesus is saying there are two choices. You can love money and use God and others, or you can love God and others and use money. And the choice is yours. But Jesus says, don't be fooled. Don't think that you can serve both God and money. You can't do it. You're going to end up loving one and hating the other. And you're not the exception to the rule. No one can serve two masters. Really? I mean, I sometimes actually think I might be able to be the exception to this rule. Don't you guys? I mean, I sit there and I listen to Chris Jansen sing. He's a country singer. I can just relate to his words so well. He says, I know everybody says money can't buy happiness, but it can buy me a boat. It can buy me a truck to pull it. Come on, you know it. It can buy me a Yeti 110 ice down with some silver bullets. It's our chance to sing country in the church. Come on, everybody. I know what they say. Money can buy everything. Maybe so, but it can buy me a boat. Hey, a little country in church is good for us every now and then. I remember the first time I saw a fitness watch, Alice Shirey was wearing it. A friend of mine had a Fitbit. It was all you know, those things that kind of tell you uh, the number of steps you walked and how many calories you've burned, how you slept at night, your heart rate, those sorts of things. And uh, beeps at you to tell you when to move. I think it gives you healthy cravings for good food. It kind of shapes you into a real fitness model. Um, Alice was wearing one and it was cool. Maybe it was just that Alice is so cool that I wanted one. Um, maybe it could make me as cool as her. So I started researching and I started saving like money that I would get for my birthday or money that I would get for Christmas. 
And then a year or two later, I saw my friend Jesse Scolton wearing another model. And you got to know Jesse Scolton. He's Randy Scolton's husband. Randy works on staff here. Jesse is so amazing. He's the coolest guy I know. He's a runner. I think he's qualified for the Boston Marathon like twice or more. I don't know. He's really fast. He ran the Boston Marathon just this last spring. And uh, I knew I needed a watch like that. I want to run fast. I want to be cool like Jesse which meant I needed to save a little bit more money. This thing had GPS built into it. It was just just the state of the art. And so then I, I also did a little more research. I started staying up at night. Um, I spent one. I spent like an hour and a half one night doing research on the different models out there. And then I spent an hour and a half another night. And then another night. I mean, there was all these stuff, like the TomTom Cardio Spark or the Fitbit Surge or the Garmin Forerunner 225 or the Garmin Forerunner 235 or the Garmin Vivo Active H. All these incredible models of fitness watches. I was driving myself crazy. Like, how do I choose the right one? And then, guilt. Guilt. It's like, you can't be spending this kind of time. This is a waste of your time. And is it even right for you to spend this kind of money on, on a gadget like this? Right? What happened, like this gadget that you wear on your wrists had just kind of wrapped itself around my heart before I even had it. And it was like sucking the joy out of life. And it was taking my time. That's what happens when we spend too much time focused on earthly treasures. It gives them way too much power in our lives. And the world is constantly trolling for our hearts, right? It dangles stuff in front of us all the time, especially new stuff. It's luring us, convinced, convincing us that we need it. New stuff doesn't just make us feel good. It makes us feel better, like we're better people for having it. And it affects all kinds of decisions. I think about my two oldest kids who are in college and they're thinking about what jobs to have and what kind of lifestyles they're going to lead and those sorts of things. And you know, all this stuff filters in, like, how much money am I going to need to make? And I'm watching them as they wrestle with this. What's going to be their source of happiness? What's going to be their source of life? The process of getting and storing and using and replacing our stuff, it can just be exhausting. Right? We're working so hard that we don't have time for anything else but to, to replace and consume and use and, and protect and all that stuff. It's a materialistic cycle that can keep us from taking time to actually reflect on the kind of lives we're living. It can keep us from asking really good questions about what's going on in others' lives around me. What are some of my neighbor's needs? What is God doing in this world? How is he blessing this world? How do I become part of this, this movement? Jesus says, pay attention, because this kind of thinking will knock you off course. Those practices will enslave you. He calls us back to reality. He calls us back to the truth. Piling up money, material things. They might bring you temporary pleasure, but all this stuff, it rots or it rusts or it's taken. So don't put your hope in these things. Don't put your trust in your finances or your stuff. He's looking out for us when he says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also because he knows that what we value, what we treasure, what we prize is going to get our attention. It's going to get more than that. It's going to actually drive, drive our thoughts. It's going to shape our behaviors. It's actually going to uh, form our character. And if we're not careful, we can let money and material things drive us to choose careers that we hate, turn our hearts inward to our own desires, blind us to others' needs around us, and cause us 
enslave us to work schedules and jobs that we absolutely despise. Theologian John Calvin says it this way. He says, if honor is your treasure, ambition takes over. If money, then greed takes over your kingdom. If pleasure, you'll move toward sheer self-indulgent. So be very careful what treasure you set your eyes on. Jesus says, store up treasures in heaven, invest in the things that will last, the things of God, the stuff that God loves, invest in his kingdom, his work, your relationship with him, then your heart will find and follow the way to freedom. That's the path to abundant life. So a couple weeks ago, I decided, or a month ago, I guess now, I, I decided to not buy that really expensive watch. I was going to settle for a lesser model, save the 80 bucks and use it for better ways. Then on my way out the door, I checked CNN or something to check the headline, and there it was, right? My watch, it was sitting right in front of me because it was trolling for me. I'd done all that research, and now it's dangling there. But guess what? It was on sale for the exact same price as the one I was going to go buy, so I ordered it. God rewards the faithful. (laughs) That's the lesson, right? Uh, a really cool thing. So I got it. I'm wearing it today. Now it's cool. It shows my heart rate. It shows the steps and calories. It also shows though, uh, my VO max, whatever that is. And it tells me how long I need to recover after a workout, but all this for what purpose? It's all to help me become healthier. It's all to help me become a better runner, a better runner than Mike Woods. And, um, the competition is there, right? It helps me to set goals and to train better. It guides and motivates me. And it made me think, wouldn't it be great if God gave us something like this, that we could do the same thing with how we're handling our money, a way to measure not just the outward uh, you know, expression of our money, how we're doing, but what's motivating us, what's guiding us, what's going on on the inside. It doesn't just record where we spend or where we give, but how happy, how joyful are we in spending our money? Tim Keller points out, it's like we have this in other areas of life that Jesus addresses. I mean, we can kind of tell if we're committing murder or adultery. It's not my wife, what? But how do we know this about whether or not we're greedy or materialistic? You know, we're pretty good at answering that about other people. You know, Bernie Madoff or Russ Wassendorf or the SEC football conference. We know they have a problem with money. But us, we don't even like to ask the question, am I selfish Am I greedy? Am I materialistic? And not answering it paralyzes us with guilt. How do we ever get to enjoy some of the things that we have? It's not what Jesus intended. Jesus wanted to free us from this kind of struggle. And so he gives us this tool. It's right in the middle of this passage. Right after talking about treasure, Jesus says something interesting. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy... Your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Here's what's interesting. Healthy eye operates by taking in light and bending it and reflecting it back out onto objects around us so then we can see them and we can move towards them or move around them if they're in our way. But if your eyes aren't healthy, they don't take in light. And you can't see and you're left in the dark. No matter how many lights might be on around you, you're in darkness. Now, what's interesting about this is that we read healthy, but Jesus' original audience heard a little different word. They heard the word generous. 
See, many scholars suggest that what Jesus is really saying is this. He says, if we are generous, our eyes will be good and our whole body will be full of light. You and me, when we're generous, we'll have more of Christ's light in our lives. And we'll be able to see more clearly, live more freely and abundantly. But not just us, the whole body. All of God's people, all of God's family, all of the believers will be full of light when we are generous. We'll be like a city on a hill. But if we're not generous, or if we're only generous towards ourselves, we might have a bad eye. And Jesus says, be very careful about this, because it will lead you into darkness. Darkness that actually jeopardizes the health of the entire body, God's family. There's so much more at stake here than just our own personal well-being. So that's what's so insidious about materialism and greed and the love of money, right? It can take us down this path and make us less generous, and pretty soon we are in this cloud of spiritual darkness where we can't even discern what's going on in our own hearts and our own minds, and it can begin to hold us and then begin to hold our whole community, his whole body, hostage. The way to tell if you're in danger of this or you're walking in the light is to pay attention How generous are you being? Not just with your checkbook, not just with your bank statements, but what's your heart telling you when you're giving and sharing your money? Is there joy in that? Are you growing in generosity? Are you becoming more generous? Is his light being reflected onto others in and through your life? Generosity is a litmus test for where our hearts are, where our lives are headed Christians really ought to be the most generous people on the planet. Jesus tells us at the beginning of the sermon, we are to be the light of the world. And for this to happen, we have to have healthy eyes that focus on the one true light of the world, Jesus himself. Right? Eyes that are fixed on Jesus who showed us what true generosity is. He gave everything, even his life, so that we could share in and become God's greatest treasure. We have to have eyes that continue to see how Jesus is reaching out to love us, to show his kindness to us, to have his goodness poured out all over us, to give us his forgiveness and his mercy. Eyes that are so full of gratitude and joy at being adopted at his, as his sons and daughters, dearly loved by him, that that goodness just overflows out of us and spills out onto others, often spontaneously. Eyes so fixed on him that he becomes the one that we treasure above all things that we're willing to let everything else go in order to follow him. If you're having trouble seeing Jesus, I want to encourage you this morning. Try a little more generosity. See if that can help open your eyes to how he's moving in your life and in this world. And if you're struggling to be generous this morning, I want to encourage you, or you maybe just want to become more generous. I just want to encourage you to spend some time fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God and made us God's greatest treasure. Will you pray with me? Father, you are an incredibly good God. Father, we are blown away when we stop to consider what you've done for us, 
what you continue to do in our lives. Father, don't let us stop there. Let us remember that you're inviting us to take part in this same activity in our world. In fact, you're commanding us to be generous people, to be the light of the world. Help us to pay attention that we might continue to run with you the race that you've marked out for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.